Welcome to Harmony Talk, a podcast brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance business. Harmony Talk is a podcast about dreamers and doers. I'm your host, Lisa Champeau, and I am very excited to have the two guests I have on today who are truly dreamers and doers. They don't know each other, but they have a passionate connection for international development and social injustice issues. Olivia Scartelli is a young woman living in Washington, D.C., looking for a job in her field. She just earned a master's degree from Leiden University in the Netherlands. And Celeste Mergens is kind of on the other end of this. She's a seasoned career professional in the field of international development and entrepreneurism, social entrepreneurism. She is the founder of Days for Girls, a global nonprofit that provides menstrual products and education to girls and young women in about 144 countries, I think, which is quite a success right there. But it also speaks to a need that I don't think everybody in the world is quite aware of, which is the need for these hygiene products and the need to end what you call period poverty or menstrual inequity, the stigma of menstruating. Many girls in these countries are excluded. They are isolated during their menstruation time. In fact, I know, Celeste, you've told this story many, many times, how you actually came to found Days for Girls. And I would love for you to reprise that story because it is powerful, especially the visual part. Thank you. It was surprising to me as well that this is an issue. I was actually specializing in sustainable community development, helping communities find a way to sustain themselves and really excited about that and then learned that at an orphanage in the slums of Kibera, near it, in a place called Dagoretti, girls were sitting on pieces of cardboard during their period for days without access to their classroom. And as we worked to find a solution for that, a small few family and friends, the first thing that came to mind was disposable products. We've got to get them out of the room. They can't just sit there. I imagine how do you sit there with 50 kids in a room, two or three in a layer of a bunk bed. And it turned out that we did find funding for disposable single-use products, the first thing that came to mind. But I knew if they had to choose between food and hygiene, food would win. And that would be the choice for all of us. So how do you make something that would last month after month? We made the first washable products and they were poorly designed. I can say that it was me that designed it. But what we did do is listen. And from the beginning, when we brought them, the very first girls to come through the door after receiving them, there were 500 that received them, explained and said, thank you so much. Before you came, we had to let them use us if we wanted to leave the room and go to class. And it turned out that they were being exploited in exchange for a single disposable pad before we got there. And that was the moment Days for Girls was born. I just didn't know yet that this was a global issue, that girls lost days of not only education, but opportunity for all those that menstruate. And it turned out that you're right, 144 countries. Today, Days for Girls has reached 2.5 million women and girls. Well, Olivia, of course, had a fundraiser, organized a fundraiser for Days for Girls when, Olivia, you were an undergraduate at Penn State. How did you find Days for Girls? Yeah. So I was actually working at UNICEF USA in New York City at the time and was doing research on a water sanitation and hygiene project in Africa when I first came across just the issue of menstrual hygiene management and development contexts. 
And I was floored learning about how widespread the issue was and how deeply it intersected areas of gender equality, gender-based violence, access to education and economic opportunities. And quite frankly, I was embarrassed that as a woman, but also as an aspiring development professional, that I had no idea that menstrual health was an area that needed so much attention and so much innovation. So after that project, I decided to do my own research and fundraise and advocate independently in my own state of Pennsylvania to just kind of make a small impact within communities. And around that time of research, I found the organization Days for Girls and absolutely fell in love with their mission and their commitment, especially to sustainability. And I ultimately chose them to fundraise because of their specific programs that educate and train women to generate income from locally producing their own menstrual materials. And so I really believed in their mission and just wanted to be a part of it in any capacity I could. When you were fundraising, did you encounter any kind of resistance or surprise? You know, it was difficult, I think, to just go, like, for instance, for my advocacy and fundraising efforts, I went into many schools and local businesses just on my own, out of the blue, without really telling anyone why I was there. And of course, it's a topic that many people don't normally talk about. And so I definitely struggled a bit in the beginning just to make everyone feel comfortable. But I think I just tried to bring energy. I tried to bring warmth and just really motivate people why they should care. And and I was actually very, very impressed within my community in Pennsylvania that they were so welcoming towards me and willing to help after learning about everything that girls face abroad. That's really fantastic. Now, let's take that to the big picture. Celeste, you must have certainly encountered a lot of resistance and surprise and amazement, but you plowed through. So tell us a little bit about your story, your journey, how you got from there to where you are now, which which is an amazing place. Thank you. And Olivia, so inspiring what you've done. When I first came home, people didn't even believe it was a real issue. They said in 2008, that can't even still be a thing. You just encountered that at this orphanage and school. And I would just invite them, please ask others that you know in development and let me know. And of course, the movement started to grow as people said, oh, no, it is a thing here. The other thing that happened is I would be invited to speak and referred by someone else as a good speaker. And then they'd find out what I was going to speak about and they would cancel it and say, sorry, we can't talk about that. We even had a women's investment group, savvy, sophisticated professionals who got all the way to choosing us for funding and then said, you know what, we just can't do it. We battled so hard to get through the glass ceiling and we can't make our first investments project be about menstruation. It's like going to set us back. Shocking to have that response. And yet this really is one of the great taboos. We would rather talk about anything than menstruation. And that is starting to shift. But when Days for Girls started that, It just wasn't a conversation. People were astonished. One of the powerful things about this movement that is so important is that all of us can do something by just seeing it from a mindset of this connects us all. It's a powerful part of being a healthy woman, healthy family, healthy communities. And it's one that is easy to shift. There are so many things that are hard to change in this world, but menstrual equity isn't one of them. This is something we can see change in our lifetime. It's still, I think, in some countries considered dirty, yes? Oh, for sure. 
In other words, you started the organization in 2008. We're in 2022. Mm -hmm. Are we still seeing this? Oh, most certainly. So the practice of chapati, this is where you're isolated and not able to leave your room, put into a shed, completely expected to be away from your family. This practice, mostly in Western Nepal, but in many places, is one that's been going on for eons. In 2005, Nepal made it against the law, and still it continued. In 2019, it was made a finable offense, and still it continues with girls and women being bitten by snakes, dying of exposure, dying of asphyxiation, and still it continues. Why? Because it has to be a conversation about health that they buy into, which is why Olivia's comment that locally led is so important to really break the stigma. In Malawi, there is a practice called dusting off, that when you are a woman that just started your period, you are taken to a person who is a called a hyena, and this man cleanses you. Their family pays for it, and they're put at risk of pregnancy and disease because they need to be cleansed from their menstrual cycle. That's happening right now. Amazing leaders of Days for Girls and leaders in that country, the First Lady, Chief Teresa, are pushing really hard to make that a thing of the past. But it's happening right now, and it's tied to menstruation. And honestly and truly, I could go on for three hours with examples from all over the planet, including where you are right now. What do homeless women do? What do girls who are foster girls do? And part of the issue of not having it addressed is we didn't want to talk about it. Thank goodness more and more of us are. Well, how much do you think it's a tool for repression of women? in these other countries, as opposed to just a biological or physical reaction. I do feel that's a big part of it. I think that's part of why I wake up in the morning so ready to get started again. There are women who are not allowed to be with their community, not allowed to speak up, don't feel confident. How do you feel confident when you feel your basic biology is betraying you? Because it truly is told to them that it is because of their menstruation that they are less than. If that is happening in our world, that of course that's oppression. Thank goodness that more and more not only are talking about it, but are being inclusive of everyone, the men getting the education, the whole community involved in the education, because that truly is where the shift happens, where everyone chooses to make a new choice about it. And that's one of the secrets at Days for Girls, that we don't come in and shame and blame but invite the community to make a new decision and to tackle the issue in new ways that are appropriate for their culture. And it's really powerful. And I think a time, the time has come for this discussion, but it is a way that women are held back and absolutely oppressive. Your organization has won, oh, so many awards, and you yourself have won many awards as well. And um, one of the things that your organization has done that I was very impressed by was it's evolved for example, the pad itself, 27, I think, iterations of the pad to where you are today. And you also have been training people in those countries to become pad makers, entrepreneurs, which is interesting in and of itself. So how did that happen? It was important from the beginning that people be included and be taught to be ambassadors of health and have the education be education they led, and also that they put their feedback into. And from the beginning, it was important to get feedback about the pads. 
Our very first design had ribbons to hold the absorbent part in place. And the girls explained that when they walked, the pad shifted forward and they looked like a man. So pockets were added to the design, very <laughs> short. And we listened all along the way. It needed to wash with very little water. It needed to dry quickly. It needed, because of stigma, to not look like a pad so they could care for it properly. There were so many aspects of the design that were led by their influence and input. One of the really important moments for me that was such a big influencer was in Zimbabwe. People said no one would ever volunteer there. There was just too few resources for someone to volunteer. We had dozens of passionate volunteers. One of them who was taught how to make the pad. They could make them for free. They could do it without a business model. One of them reported she was going to schools and teaching about the health component, which is as powerful as the pad itself. And she was doing that. And she said, I just, and I asked more questions. How are you doing that? I hop on the bus. I said, and how are you supporting that? And she goes, I just skip meals. And then I can use that money to go teach people. And she was a woman that had HIV. Part of the reason she was so powerfully committed to making education for health happen in her communities and not taking her eating while taking her antiretroviral actually threatened her life. She knew that. And yet she was willing to risk her life to be part of the shift in her community. We needed a way to make these heroes be able to do this in their community in a way that would support them in it, not ask the ultimate sacrifices of their family and personally. So it hasn't been easy doing it the way we've done in this hybrid model of global volunteers, raising advocacy and seeding the market and then enterprises fulfilling the need in ways that allow them to be the shift is a complicated matter that has required a lot of listening and a lot of learning. But we believe in what we call failing forward, learning forward and being tenaciously flexible. That's right. You don't take no for an answer. One of the things that has distinguished the guests on this show, and, and you fall right into that, is that you don't look at a problem and say, oh, I've got to go tell somebody. You look at a problem and say, I've got to do something about this, which is an interesting component, I think, of international development professionals. Wouldn't you say, Olivia? Yeah. You know, I think that we leave with passion and we aren't afraid of making change, even if it's on the small scale. I think those bottom-up approaches to development are the most important because they make long-lasting impact to communities on the community level. And that's where I think change is most needed. Now, I know, Olivia, you've worked in a couple of international organizations such as UNICEF and Global Brigades in Panama and Refugees Welcome in Boston, but you're still kind of searching for your your life career. And Celeste, I know that you, I think that I read that you have a degree in creative writing and somehow you went from creative writing to international development, sustainable community work. How did that happen? <laughs> That's a long story. Uh, to try to make it succinct, I have a background. You know how the things that happen in our lives can turn out to be exactly what we needed, no matter what they look like. And I had the background of having lived in poverty, having gone without food, gone without a home at parts of my life. And so always I was looking for ways to be helpful to communities, to not identify with the circumstance, but with ways to make it what they want. 
And having been seen and perceived as part of my life as a person in poverty and not seeing myself as that, really wanted sustainable solutions that helped shift the mindset to, no, we've got this, and to bring solutions that would do that. As I did that, I was in Kenya, as you know, and then audited a global sustainable development master with the people that had brought me there. And I really was searching for how to do that and had the most miraculous opportunity, long story, to be invited to the World Food Prize and to become one of the delegates for that. And so just became part of that community in a deeply immersive way. And what's interesting is you're right. How do you get from creative writing to a global influencer for development? And the answer is, You surf with your passion and follow that flow of that spark that's like, I yearn to make a difference there. And then study, listen, and dive in. And dive in. Olivia, do you hear anything in this story that resonates with you? Of course. To me, Celeste is an icon. You know, she's working towards, I've done lots of research on her and the organization. And obviously, I was a part of it and it was a great experience, but I want to keep growing as well, maybe in the gender equality space, maybe in other spaces in international development, and maybe start something of my own one day. But I think that it's so important, especially women-run businesses, and about empowering girls around the world is just such a powerful mission. And I just think that it's something that I probably will be working towards for the rest of my life. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. And I'm glad that I was able to put you two together. But women's issues in particular do speak to you. What's the future of Four Days for Girls at this point, just to continue doing what you're doing, which is marvelous work? And it is kind of hard to believe that it's still going on so much throughout the world, but you have made an impact for sure. In fact, could you talk a little bit about the impact? Yes. We have reached right at 2.5 million women and girls and people with periods all over the world, and influenced other groups to start doing what we do. And importantly, governments are stepping up now and making a part of their national and countrywide initiatives. That's true in Cambodia. They partnered with us to do a test for teaching master teachers who will then go on and are teaching other teachers so that this conversation can be a big one for them. And delighted to work with the Ministry of Education and Health there in Malawi, the First Lady and the Ministers of Gender and Education and Health are stepping up with a complete national commitment to achieving menstrual equity in their country. It's really exciting to see that. It's also exciting to see we continue to innovate about the enterprise model. It's interesting to try to make something that's taboo in communities shift to something that's sustainable in economy. One of the challenges we faced is we wanted to be very inclusive of everyone being invited to participate. And there are certain skills that make it easier to succeed. When we first started, I was thinking, it's like the Avon of menstrual pads. They just make them, they teach, repeat, and it works. But in truth, not realizing, (laughs) I was really asking them, To be a chemist, the person adding the color, the person who packaged it, and then the person to deliver and sell it, all of those things, and communities where your time is really stretched, particularly as women, and carrying so much of the burden of the care of the community as a whole. So it's been important to make it replicatable, scalable, and something that can be easily applied and had to include business knowledge, leadership knowledge, confidence building, as well as the education, 
and the product itself and how to partner with others with strength. So it's required a lot of innovation and that innovation continues. It takes a lot of partners, I think, for an organization such as yours to become as successful as it has. How have you found those partners, considering all the things that we've been talking about, you know, the stigma, the the fear of even talking about it? Who are your partners? Oh, it's been amazing. doTERRA Essential Oil was the first corporate sponsor, and they actually found us because they were in the communities and they wanted to support the communities they do their oils in. And they kept hearing this is an issue And I had had the chance to meet with one of their community and the rest is history. They've been phenomenal global supporters. Starbucks is a partner. This is Elle and Procter & Gamble are partners. We have phenomenal partners all over the world. And they usually come to us because they have heard of the impact. And then someone within the company advocates because it is hard for them to come. Like, I don't think we want our brand tied to that. But it's usually because of the courageous conversations of someone within the company who says, no, I stand for this. And I actually think that's one of the phenomenal things about Days for Girls. Everyday people have been willing to talk to complete strangers about periods. I mean, that's that's remarkable. And we have 70,000 volunteers estimated to have been part of Days for Girls along the way and probably more. And people like Amazing Olivia, who didn't say, oh, I can't do it and tell me what to do, but instead say, I'm showing up so this inequity ends in our world. I'm showing up. And I think it's a testament to how powerful people are when they come together in community. And don't worry about who gets credit. Don't worry about whether it's going to be ironically sexy or not, but rather go, I want to create change And I'm in. And you're seeing Olivia as one of those that just says, I won't take no for an answer. I'm going to find a way. I don't need a playbook. I'm in. We're going to follow her too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mm Celeste. What has been the toughest country to crack? Oh, my. Well, can I share one of the stories? I find it interesting. Yemen is interesting because there's such suppression for women. So a few times I have heard that when they're getting together, They actually have to disclose their location of where education will happen privately to do the education, but not a lot of traction there because of that, right? I personally had a price put on my name at one of the countries we work in, but let me share with you, and it's still going game busters there, and let me share with you in Cambodia what happened to us when we came to teach the master teachers. So we're we're there to teach them. Uh, We've been given permission. We've already met with the ministries of education and health. We're sitting in the room and this very tall Cambodian man is in the middle. There's only like six of us, stretches out his legs, his arms are crossed. And he says, I know what you're trying to do, but this will never work. And then he goes on to explain, you know, if we talk about this, the other teachers will laugh at us. The students will laugh at us and the parents will be mad at us. And people have tried this before. It's not going to work. And by the end, After our education and conversations, he was one of the ones saying, let's go. We need to teach everybody this and to acknowledge that there is embarrassment for boys and girls as they learn or don't know about how their body is changing during puberty and that this really did need to shift. But when he first arrived, I can tell you, these were the most locked arms and cross legs and complete posture of, oh no, this won't work, I have ever seen. 
Well, certainly the power of persuasion was at work there. I mean, what was your biggest persuader? I mean, what did you use to move this man to unlock his arms? I wish I could take credit for that. Here's what happened. There was an influential school founder who was in the room, phenomenal man, who stopped, came to the front and said, hey, when I was a young boy and I was sitting in the classroom and my body was doing things I didn't tell it to do, it's time for recess. Everybody says, come on. And I've got my arm pressing down on my lap and says, I'll follow you later. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? And I was embarrassed and I didn't know why these changes were happening. He said, imagine how hard it is on the girls. And so imagine what you can do to help with this. It was such a powerful moment. We ended up videoing him and sharing it with for all the curriculum, for all the teachers. That is a powerful story indeed. A very personal story, too, on the part of the school founder. Would you say that the ultimate goal for Days for Girls is actually to end the organization because hygiene education is a worldwide effort? We've always said that we were working ourselves out of a job, that it would be locally held everywhere. I think the advocacy will continue to be needed and the encouragement of the conversation. And yeah, we're trying to work ourselves out of a job. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We can do it. We can do it. This is happening. Olivia, do you have any questions for Celeste? Uh, Yeah. First, I'll ask, what measures does your organization have to ensure that communities are still on a sustainable path after Days for Girls intervention? Great question, by the way, right? (laughs) They actually are encouraged to stay on board and to be ambassadors, to report back, to participate in monitoring and evaluation. And actually, the enterprise model is a way for them to stay engaged and be present. It is an important part of how we do our work. They're also invited to be advocates. So there are multiple venues and avenues for them to come to this work. In addition, I think it's been incredibly important to not only give them a voice in the movement, but to actually make it about them. In other words, invite them to be the reason it's being led and the voices that tell us how it should be led there. It's not easy to do, but it's an important premise of Days for Girls. When people support what they create, and that's tremendously important, and if I may add, In 2019, we had a young girl named Jacqueline in Kenya who was 14 years old and was menstrual shamed in her classroom. Her teacher pushed her out of her chair because she wasn't getting up, then discovered a menstrual stain, called her dirty. And then Jacqueline went home. Her mother said, take this rope and jerry can, lower it in the river and clean herself, get back to school. Instead, she hung herself with the very rope that she'd been given. The community, when they learned of this, had a riot at the school. And it was not good. They were tearing down the gate. A local ambassador women's health named Anita in Beaumont County went all the way to them. She heard about it. It took her a half hour to get there. She'd been teaching this education in her community. And she invited her community. What if no more girls are shamed so much that this could be what they felt was their only choice? And what if we just talked about this? I can help you. We can do this together. And that community with her leadership went on to reach thousands and thousands and thousands and are taking a lead in Kenya, right? That could not happen if not for local leadership. You would both want to be there to help, but none of us could be there. We couldn't be there, but Anita 
could and did show up. And the results was a community wide shift in a place where stigma is so great that that could occur in their community. So it's hugely important that we do give them the keys and to follow their lead and support that dynamic of engagement so that the whole community is the future of the end of the stigma and shame. It's unfortunate that that had to happen to inspire that change. In Kenya, you said also, which is where you started Days for Girls. So you have a lot of work ahead of you, it sounds like, but your impact has been quite amazing and it has been wonderful to talk to both of you. I don't know, Olivia, if you have any final words or Celeste. I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me on here. It's always a pleasure to talk about international development movements and and organizations such as Days for Girls who are fighting every day for girls' equality and gender equality all over the world. And it's just so powerful to be with two of you women today talking about these issues that hopefully we don't have to deal with in the future. Work yourself out of a job, Celeste. (laughs) Absolutely. I feel so grateful that this is something we can change. And there have got to be other keys to reversing cycles of poverty and inequity that are hidden in stigma and shame. I'm so thankful to be part of one and to see how much we can change it together. It is such a joy to meet people like you who are all in for highlighting what's possible. It's been a joy being with you today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a joy being with both of you. I'm really, really energized by this conversation. It's a topic that I don't think a lot of people really know a lot about, and you have provided that. So thank you both very much. Harmony Talk is a podcast brought to you by AM Skyer, a third-generation family insurance business. I'm your host, Lisa Shampo. Talk to you next time. <laughs>